listening to the questions this morning and our instructions and in the interviews over the days. Um, you know, I hear a lot of questions, a lot of sense that we've been giving uh, different instructions. There's different techniques that various of you are doing, all of which is, is fine. And a lot of the, the questions or sense of wondering or doubt or how do I do it right or which technique is best or you hear instructions for a technique you're not doing and then you want to know how to do your technique but with those instructions. And I mean, it can get a little confusing. But it's all good. It's all good. Just tonight, I just want to remind us all, nothing new, but remind us all of the larger context, the reason for any or all of our methods, techniques of practice, why the Buddha taught and why we're doing it. Just to give a, 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 remind us of the bigger picture, so to speak. So remembering the Buddha one of his famous statements is, you know, I teach one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha, or is it sometimes translated suffering, the end of suffering, or other descriptions of it, or, or liberation of mind, of heart, through non-clinging, recognition of natural great peace. Learning, now this isn't the Buddha's words now, learning to see through our limiting and limited views and ideas about ourself, about our world, about what is possible, about what happiness and suffering actually are. This is vast. It's also accessible immediately in this moment, here and now. It's the context, hopefully the ground, the motivation, hopefully, which in some form is, hopefully, I'm saying, because I don't know for you, inspiring all of our practices, all of the techniques and methods, all of our journeys along our individual paths. And to get in touch for yourself in whatever language, in whatever form works for you with your sincere motivation and the depth and vastness of it, the breadth of it, is, I think, really helpful and essential at times, especially when we find ourselves getting caught up in kind of niggling with it's not going right, or how do I do, or is this the right, or is that the right? You know, we get so focused on what we're doing that it's helpful to just reconnect for yourself with the depth, the profundity, or the simplicity, whatever word you want to use, of your motivation. Touch it. You know, the beginning of a sitting, the beginning of a day, the beginning of a walking. Our sincere motivation, the essential energy that keeps us going here, you know, that helps us put one foot in front of the other, that helps us come back and be here for this next moment of greed, for this next breath for this next unpleasant sound, whatever the heck it is, for this next moment of bliss. Essential supports our energy and our steadiness, really getting in touch with your motivation over and over, honoring it. And yet motivation, of course, or wise attitude, you could say, is not enough to really uh, start us and keep us going on our path needs to be joined with, supported by wise discernment, wisdom, wise understanding. Or you could even say in a very simple way, just starting with the right information. So as both Sally and Howie talked about uh, in, in their talks, this sense of what is happiness. Now actually it said that Part of what motivated the Buddha to start teaching was seeing with his all-seeing mind the fact that most people have a wrong information about what happiness is. Right? You could get that a little bit from, from Sally and Howie's talk, that we all want to be happy. But with our limited understanding, with wrong information actually, about what constitutes true ease, peace, freedom, happiness, happiness is a tricky word, about what's possible, about 
what's really so, just how things are. Without that right information, we end up looking for happiness. We'll end up floating in that deck chair over LA, <laughs> one way or the other, right? Such a great story, because you know, I could really, maybe not that one, but some way or the other, that's a metaphor for what we do without the right information. Keep on feeding confusion. So as the Buddha, as the Buddha said, you know, his, his teaching, the path of awakening, it runs against the stream, he says, of culture. I won't say modern culture. He said it back then. It runs against the stream of culture as to what happiness is, what suffering is, what peace is possible. And not just external culture, it runs against the stream of the habits of our heart and mind, which, as if we're separate from our culture, I don't think so. I mean, what is our culture but us? Which I was, never mind, but it's, that's not always the most inspiring thought for me, but it's true. So the habits of our mind are also, when we just let them run without paying attention, they're against the stream of the Buddhist teachings. And so we really need to begin and keep referring to what you call right information. But the Buddha said, what do we need to know to begin our path, to stay on our path, to support our awakening? So of course, and this is the context for all of our particular forms of practice or methods. So of course, this really basic, and we all are familiar with it, this context, what we need to know, the right information that leads our motivation into discerning awareness, into wise view, into the freedom that comes from wisdom, is what he called the Four Noble Truths. I just want to speak a little bit about each of them. So the first truth the first truth, which in the word Pali is dukkha. And I want to talk a little about that word and what this truth is. The first truth of dukkha is often translated into English as suffering. And I really uh, don't find that uh, broad enough or helpful. And so I, I'm, I'm saying it so that we can see in our own hearts and minds the, the ideas, the kind of connotations that come up in our mind and heart when you hear the word suffering. And if you're used to translating dukkha as suffering, then it'll be the same, right? But dukkha, first of all, this truth of dukkha, as the Buddha said, is to be understood. And it's really like a broad description of the human condition. That's just what it is. And he doesn't say this truth of dukkha is to be changed, gotten rid of, hated, you know, overcome. It's to be understood. It's basically, hey folks, this is the way it is. Learn to be with it and you'll be free. Keep fighting it. Yeah, we're floating over LA again. <laughs> so dukkha, uh, as maybe, maybe many of you have read the, the book on the Satipatthana Sutta by Analayo. He's a seems to be one, a really interesting translator of Pali as well. So he is describing two possible definitions of the word dukkha based on different derivations of the word. One of them, and I'm not going to go too much into etymology, but one of them, dukkha, would mean like uh, du is difficulty and ka is like the, the hole that an axle goes through in an ox cart, okay? So it's basically the hole and the, and the axle rod don't fit properly. So dukkha is like disharmony, friction, that kind of rub, you know. It's just always kind of rubbing, not going smoothly. That's one. The other one is um, standing, uh, standing with difficulty, standing uneasily, uncomfortably. So again, dukkha would mean standing badly, so to speak. So it's a kind of uneasiness a dis-ease, being uncomfortable. That's very different from horrible dukkha, suffering. And then I want to give his, the, what the Buddha gave as the, what comes under dukkha, 
unreliability, insecurity, kind of that rub. So first is dukkha, dukkha, the basic, that there's basic unpleasant experience. Okay, and that's usually what we think of as dukkha. You know, and I, I find myself using dukkha as a shorthand for unpleasant, for suffering, actual suffering, like, you know, my, I step on a thorn, my foot really hurts, I'll go, oh, dukkha. You know, we always, we, we in this kind of meditation scene use that as a shorthand. And it's really not helpful because it, it, it keeps um, reinforcing a limited understanding of what dukkha means. So if, you know, something's really going badly, ah, go, oh, dukkha, you know. But so that's the first definition, basic unpleasant experience. Being born is pain, sickness, old age, disease, death, being separated from what we love, being put together with what we don't love. Again, the basic human condition. But all of those, we can really relate. Yeah, that's the friction. That's not going well. That's standing badly. That's suffering. We wouldn't have a problem calling that suffering. It's part of life. Second aspect is the aspect of everything is in constant change. But this includes also all pleasant experience as well as all neutral experience. So the first noble truth is not just about things we don't like. It's that all experience, all the six sense doors, all that we experience arises due to conditions. The conditions change, it goes away. But within that, there's plenty of really pleasant and lovely experience. It's also dukkha. Remember Howie last night talking about sukha dukkha. That's what he means. But we mostly don't think, and in our shorthand, which is inaccurate, when something really nice is happening and everything's going well, we don't go, oh, that's dukkha. We go, oh, no, finally. Finally, you know, the universe came together, the stars are in alignment, or I finally got it, I'm equanimous, I finally overcome you, now the breath is right, now it's how it's supposed to be. Now that's dukkha. <laughs> because it isn't going to stay like that very long. So it's to be understood. The change, the unreliability that all feelings, the Buddha said, there's one sutta where he said, all feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is dukkha. It's all unreliable. It's all subject to change. It's all insecure. And that's not saying it's bad. It's just saying this is a broad statement of the human condition. And in fact, something to really be aware of is if we find, in, it just, just in paying attention to our own experience and the only way we relate, that when we come in contact with some aspect of this first noble truth of dukkha, the unpleasant, the pleasant, the neutral, the change, the whatever, do we automatically associate it with some form of aversion? with some form of unpleasantness, that can we even contemplate the first noble truth in a really open, accepting, oh, that's just how it is, wise way. How easy is it for our mind to slip into the habit of some kind of aversion to it? And I don't know, that's just a, some, some, a reflection, a contemplation to tune into to yourself, because that's a misunderstanding. I mean, we can have, and we often do, have reactions of uh, mild aversion to deep despair, to fear, to resistance, to outright, flat, total denial, you know, of many aspects of dukkha. And it's a really very profound and subtle uh, truth, way of life. It, you know, it just really touches everything. I find in all the years of practice, first hearing about the truth of dukkha was actually really liberating. It, it cheered me up, you know, sort of, it's like, oh, that's why. Think, like when Sally was talking about going on vacation and it's supposed to be so wonderful, and we just ignore all the stuff that isn't and come back and think, oh, that was great, that was wonderful. Like, it's supposed to be. We're almost like talking ourselves into it. And somewhere in the back, I kind of think, you know, I'm, I'm acting out when I, this is when I was quite young, but I, didn't, I couldn't have put the words to it, but as if I was 
trying to conform to what I thought everybody else was happy about, but it really internally, my experience wasn't everything so wonderful, everything so happy. I remember once, I mean, when I was younger, when I really kind of got this, I was went with a friend uh, when I was working at IMS. We, we went uh, to have a sauna. We went to have a workout in the sauna. So it was in the middle of winter, so we have to get in the car, really snowy, icy, freezing, drive for half an hour to the, the health club. Then we go in, and it's, it's really, you know, we had to separate. He's a man who's really cold in that locker room, and my body, I hate the cold. I don't, so it's really uncomfortable. Went swimming, which was freezing. I was tensed up, and I don't like exercise anyway. <laughs> got out of that, you know, got into the sauna. Oh, thank God, I could relax for, you know, a few minutes. Then you start to sweat. Then it gets all wet, and you're sweating and hot and smelly, and then you get a headache. So if you get out and get in a cold shower, I hate cold showers. So I'm in the cold shower, I hate that. But then I can get back in the sauna. It's nice again for five minutes, then stinky, sweaty headache. I gotta get out, take another shower, get dressed, and leave. You know, we both got together, like, wow, that was so good. We get back in the car and go. That's the stories I was telling myself. That's really more the axle you know, not fitting in the hole. It's always crying, what's the problem? <laughs> Things are supposed to be nice. So hearing about dukkha, it was a relief on some level. But of course, we have to keep discovering over and over the, the habit of aversion and just flat-out denial is really can be so strong. I read this in a newspaper a few years ago. Uh, an article from a small town in Spain. The mayor of this southern city has banned death. He, f- he feels the local cemetery is too crowded for a soul to get decent rest. So the 4,000 residents of this village in Granada province have to remain alive while municipal officials shop for land to house a new graveyard. The mayor issued an edict last week ordering people, quote, to take utmost care of their health so they do not die until town hall takes the necessary steps to acquire land suitable for our deceased to rest in glory. I call that denial of the basic facts of life and that they're out of our control. So... I mean, I could go on and on. I'm just, you know, giving little highlights about dukkha. Um, it's to be understood. And we understand it, how Zajan Chah says, just by meeting it right where it arises. Not by, oh no, this doesn't like, like me at the going to the, the health club. It's unpleasant and it's just kind of this denial in my mind. It's just, you see it and just kind of gloss over it. You know it's there, but you don't really open into it. You don't really let it in, and then you know it didn't really happen. You kind of tough it out. It's gone. Okay, now it's the good part. You know, Ajahn Chah says, wherever it hurts, wherever there's friction, right there we must investigate. Take that thorn out of your foot. Just pull it out. Wherever your mind gets stuck, you notice it, and as you look into it, you will understand it, you'll see it, you'll experience it as it is. Wherever suffering arises, look into it. Look right into the present moment. Look at your own mind and body. When suffering arises, ask, not so much asking, but just looking at why is there suffering? Look right now. When happiness arises, like what is the cause of that happiness? Look right there. Wherever these things arise, be aware. Both happiness and suffering arise from clinging. And I read that on purpose because often, again, the happiness, the sukha dukkha, clinging is what causes the suffering of it. So that's the second noble truth. The cause of, not the cause of, the cause of our suffering, the cause of our anguish, the cause of our difficulty is not just the facts of life, but it's, it's often given the causes being tanha, the Pali word for craving, intense thirst, wanting. I'm just going to broaden it here, saying that in, in terms of our practice, in terms of exploring our minds 
and dis-ease and unreliability and confusion in the moment, that the real cause of our anguish is not only the craving, the holding on to the pleasant, but also the reactions of aversion of pushing away of the unpleasant. And the third reaction of mind of relating to any sense experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental experience, relating to any mental experience as me, as mine, as all about me, right? Greed, hatred, delusion. That in the mind, in a moment, any particular moment, is the cause of our anguish, the clinging, the aversion, the meing. So when Ajahn Chah says, look right there when happiness arises, he's talking about worldly happiness in that way. Clinging, it's the cause of the suffering around it. Because yes, there's plenty of pleasant experience, of happy experience. Yeah, like how he said, sukha dukkha. And we don't want to hate it. That's just aversion. It's not, so just as we don't want to just hold away and like gloss over the difficult, the unpleasant, the times that it's rough and not working. We also, and equally, don't want to say, well, it's going well now. So either we do one of two things. We don't pay attention anymore. That's what I was saying. It's going well. It's equanimous. I've got it. You know, I stop. In some way, I coast. That's, that's the habit of my mind. Okay, it's fine. And then real suffering, real suffering wakes me up again. I don't want to hear that the pleasant, the equanimous, when everything's going well, is, all, is sukha dukkha. Did you want to hear that? Yeah, you want to hear that when things are going well and your breath is nice and it's all even, that that's also dukkha? Is that what you came here for? Probably not. And so the habit of my mind is to stop really looking then sometimes. But another habit that happens with many people, especially comes out on retreat, is to really notice the difficult, what you're doing wrong, the suffering, and actually almost not stop looking with the pleasant, but actually discount the wholesome, the beautiful. So a moment of real peace arises in your mind and you think, well, that was you know, just a one-off. Or some, you know, you're really struggling with something and suddenly you just see there's a real insight into it. You think, well, that, that was nice, but now that insight's gone and I'm back in dukkha. That doesn't count. Or you're having a good time. Many people, it's going kind of calm sometimes. It seems to be going well. You're really interested. And you come into interviews, and there's that little in the background, but I'm not really learning. I'm not really getting to the nub of things. You know, I'm not really doing it. It should be suffering. It should be hard. You know, There's a way we don't trust. So both of those, and in, in really, in Ajahn Chah says, meet it right where it is. Look. Look at the suffering. Look at the happiness. Really meet it as it is with awareness that's filled with interest, not with assumption, not with meaning. Just see right there. That's how we come to understand dukkha. But anyway, back to the cause of our anguish or suffering, which is to be abandoned, the, dukkha, the Buddha says is really exploring these habits of wanting, of clinging, of pushing away, and of meing, myeing, making everything all about me. And each of those is a talk, right? So I'm just going to talk, just briefly mention them. Again, as I said, there is worldly happiness. And looking at it and seeing the insecurity in it, is freeing. That's not about getting depressed. That's about freeing us to really appreciate and be more fully present in the worldly happiness without looking to it to give us something it can never give. Ajahn Chah again. Worldly accomplishments, happiness on whatever level, still leave you in the realm of suffering. Whatever happiness there may be comes about in dependence on external things. That's not the happiness of freedom. The happiness that does not depend on anything external. So what is it we depend on? We depend on possessions. We depend on pleasure, on reputation, 
on praise, on wealth. We lean on all these things, like leaning on a rotting old tree trunk. And then as we lean on it for too long, it breaks and falls, and we fall with it. Such is worldly happiness. I love that image, just somehow, that image of just sitting here so happy, leaning on the trunk, and just clunk, you know? And it's like that when it changes. But remember I said dukkha doesn't mean aversion or dislike of it. So when we hear this, you notice if your mind goes, well, there's no point in leaning on any of these things, so forget them all. They're no good at it. You notice it go to a kind of a judgment or a negativity. Hopefully it doesn't, but if it does, just notice that because that's just aversion. That's just rejection. And really understanding the truth of dukkha is, oh, this is how it is. This wonderful praise, this accomplishment, this lovely, concentrated, peaceful, equanimous meditation is just what it is, just so much. If I don't lean on it to be anything more, we really fully open into it completely. No part left out, no resistance, no me too related to, no separation. Very different from, oh, this is nice, but it's going to pass, so never mind. You know, forget it. So opening into the truth of dukkha is actually very freeing. What's wrong with clinging? What's wrong with aversion? We're not saying they're bad. They obstruct peace. They obstruct recognizing the possibility in this moment of peace of mind and heart, of ease, of clear seeing. Same with meaning and minding. With clinging, it's like, I want this, I want that. You know, it just takes you, takes you, takes you. It pulls you around by the nose. My brother has a, a hound dog. And so it's a, a lovely dog, a really nice dog, but he's bred for hunting, this breed. And this dog is so... He's really literally led by the nose. It's painful to watch him. He comes in the house and he just follows any new person, any new smell, anything that comes in the house that's in my luggage that has anything to do with food or dirty clothes or anything that's had any smell of a, of a human or a living being, he cannot stay away from it. They have to lock all the, all the garbage up, all the doors closed. The dog just cannot stay away from it. He's literally led by his nose, you know, to the exclusion of anything else that's going on. And it looks like real suffering. It's like it really feels to me as like the essence of craving. This and this. And I mean, he's getting nothing from any of it, but just can't stop. It's painful to watch until it drives you crazy, you know, and it's like that. It's like that with us. And I noticed the other day, I can't even remember what it, oh, we were taking a walk. We, we were walking, I'm walking uphill, and I noticed, I get tired walking uphill. Well, one does, and I do. And so I was just walking uphill, and you know, my energy was kind of going. And then I noticed a thought came in mind, oh, soon we'll be at a flat point. And the craving came up. And I was just watching the mind and the craving that came up. And I saw how we can confuse craving for happiness. Because in that moment of craving, it was kind of energizing. Yeah, I'll get to the flat point. It kind of almost felt good, you know, better than being tired. And I thought, that's really interesting. That's how we get led by it. You know, and if I didn't just see that, there's nothing wrong. I just kept walking uphill. It didn't change anything. And that craving came and went. I didn't get to the flat point any quicker. And when I got there, it lasted a second. And then it wasn't flat and we had to go up, you know, (laughs) big deal. But I saw how the craving itself brought a kind of energy that if if I wasn't really aware, if I wasn't noticing, you know, knowing the craving as it arose, I would have mistaken that for a kind of pleasure. And the Buddha says this in, in, in the suttas, when he talks about uh, tanha as the cause of suffering, he says craving which comes together with delight. So often we mistake the craving for happiness, and so that keeps us spinning in it. Don't believe me. Just explore and see. As I say, there's whole talks about this. 
aversion, this, the, the re- resistance, the not liking what's happening, wanting it to be different, pushing it away. You know, so we shrink back, we disconnect, and again, our world, our view, our sense of things is really limited. Do you notice here how that unpleasant experience, it's like you're married to it, you know? It's unpleasant and we're resistant to it, but somehow that resistance keeps us just there with it, like it fills up the world. There's one unpleasant feeling in your body. There's a lot of neutral and pleasant feelings in your body, but what is your attention just constantly drawn to? You have many, many, many thoughts, but that one thought about, my practice was so much better last year. What am I doing wrong? That thought gets grabbed a hold of and it fills up the world. Like, you know, Thich Han says, if you, have one, if you have one rough tooth, you know, a little hole in your tooth and all your other teeth are fine, can you keep your tongue away from that little rough tooth? You just, you just worry it to death, you know? The mind, it's as if in resistance to what it doesn't like, get really caught in it. And again, it, can, it limits. It, uh, it's a maker of measurement, a maker of limitation. And then both of these, of course, are all about who? Me. 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 It all starts from me. It all ends with me. It all goes around me. Any of the six sense experiences in the moment of knowing of them, of knowing it, can almost immediately be brought back to me when that's what's coloring the attention. Have you noticed that? You're sitting here very quietly and someone goes out and closes the door. It's got nothing really to do with you. But if you notice that, how likely? What are they doing and how does it affect me? Or, oh, they're leaving, but I'm sitting here so calm and still. I didn't leave, you know? Someone's walking slow. You think, oh, I should be, or I shouldn't be, or they're doing that and I'm doing the new way, I'm walking fast, or someone (laughs) asks about, you know, concentration, and you immediately have to compare yourself. Good, bad, neutral, it doesn't matter. But how more freeing is it when there's just a sight, a sound, somebody asks a question, and it's just what it is, space. The mind makes nothing around it. Very freeing. Notice how quickly, though, the reference is back to me, and how entranced we are by all of these reactions. And this is really the place that our practice is hopefully helping us learn to see through. Because we're so entranced by our reactions of liking and disliking and assessment and describing and what does it mean about me, my practice, my life, my past, my future, all of that. We're so entranced by the object of the experience and our reaction to it, that that's what causes and keeps us spinning in suffering and confusion. And this is the information the Buddha is trying to give us to see through, that this is not really the essence of what's happening, and this is not the way to real peace, which intellectually probably we all know or we wouldn't be here. And the intellectual knowing does us some good, it does. Hopefully, at least it gets us to look. At least it gets us to say, something isn't working. Let me try. But the habits are so strong I mean, they're just so ingrained. This is why the Buddha talked about our practice going against the stream, because they just feel right. I mean, doesn't it feel right when things are pleasant and things are happening the way you want them to happen? Doesn't it just feel so right that that's how it's supposed to be, that that's good? It just feels like that, you know? And it's, it just creeps in that it's about me, that I'm practicing, I'm putting out effort, I'm getting concentrated, or I'm not concentrated, or I, I, I. Of course it's all about me. I mean, when I'm sitting here, who's the center of everything, you know? Me. Who's thinking these thoughts? Me. Who's meditating? Me. It's just so familiar that we don't even recognize it's happening half the time, never mind looking to see through it. 
Bankai said, don't set yourself into confrontation with things, with experience, and then your primary being reveals itself in its true form. What does he mean? Our primary being reveals itself in its true form. What's he pointing to? So I want to say is the third noble truth, that there's a liberation, an ending of suffering, of confusion, an ending of our anguish, namely liberation of heart, of mind, through non-clinging. This is not talking about a specific constructed state that we work hard enough, manage to create, get there, and stay. It's not an external state, not an internal state. But moment to moment, there's only this moment. But moment to moment, this can be touched, kind of um, tasted, given an intimation of the freedom, the spaciousness, the Happiness is a tricky word to use, whatever. Peace, liberation of heart and mind through non-clinging. Not through the state, but in a moment when the consciousness, the awareness, the mind-heart, same word, is in that moment free from being colored by desire, greed, hatred, aversion, fear, me, me, me. When these things aren't coloring aren't, and we're not Uh, lost in them, sunk into them, when we're not identifying with those, when in that moment the awareness, the consciousness, the mind is released from clinging, from aversion, from entrancement really, our entrancement with our reactions and our self-story. They can even still be there, but the entrancement is released, the attachment is released. That's when it's a possibility to recognize the purity of our true nature, our primary being. This famous, very well-known from the Buddha. Luminous is this mind. And remember, the word for mind, same as the word for heart. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really does understand, and so for them there is cultivation of the mind. You get a sense of how both are true depending on the orientation, the energy, the interest in a moment. When we don't understand the attachments that visit the mind in any particular moment, awareness, consciousness, if we're not dead, we're not you know, in a coma, is always happening. It's always. There's a moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. It's happening every moment. And that moment of consciousness, there's awareness knowing that it's happening. You know, sometimes we don't know. There's not conscious awareness. Sometimes there is. That awareness comes together with various mental qualities, such as the big three we've been talking about, you know, greed, hatred, aversion, or fear, delusion, confusion, me, me, me. So when they're talking, when the Buddha talks about colored by the attachments that visit it, it means in that moment of awareness, when those one of those qualities is in the mind, if we don't understand that actually the mind, the heart is luminous, it is unstained, it's free of those attachments. When we understand that it's free from those attachments, then there's really cultivation. When we don't understand it, that's when we're just sunk in our reactions, thinking that's all it is. That's all life is about. Pleasant, get more pleasant. Unpleasant, get away from it. Arrange, manipulate, so that you can get as much pleasant as possible before you die. And don't think too much about you're going to die, because that's not a happy thought. We don't know any other way. That is 
such a deep, poignant sadness. That's what motivated the Buddha to teach. When that's all there is, then there's, there's no cultivation of the mind. But what all of our practices come out of, and what I know you all know, we've all touched it many times, is in that moment when there's the, the bright, luminous, pure quality of just awareness. And it isn't colored by wanting, by aversion, by confusion or delusion. It's just awareness and whatever object is arising, and it doesn't matter what the object is. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, mental activity, pleasant mental activity like bliss, really unpleasant mental activity like I'm the stupidest jerk who ever lived. It doesn't matter when that there's the awareness, oh, awareness and object. And what happens in the mental cultivation is that we change the direction of our interest, the direction of recognition. We change in a way, foreground, background, we change what's important. So our focus becomes less and less on manipulating all the experience or assessing it in terms of what it means about me or trying to have different experience. And I'm not just talking about meditation, our whole life. Less and less is the energy going into the experience, and less and less is the focus on our reaction to experience. And more and more, the interest, the focus, the love, really, the sense of fulfillment is on just recognizing awareness itself, awareness of anything. We go into the anything. Turn around and just be interested in the knowing of the anything. And that's really what we're doing. That just the quality of simplicity of wakefulness. Awake, alert, kind of intelligent. Just what it is. It's so simple. As I said, we've all had many moments like that. Sometimes they're very, they're just kind of neutral. It might feel peaceful. It just is a kind of a moment when you're, it's funny, we talk about mindfulness as remembering yourself, but these moments are sort of like a moment where you forget yourself. I'm not talking about some big, you know, blowing apart, anatta, unity, you know, no sense. I'm just talking about a simple moment where you're not relating every damn thing that happens back to me. Oh my God, it's so exhausting. (laughs) you, You know, you're just walking down the hill. And they're seeing in here, and you can be really, really focused or not. It's not about being really concentrated. It's not about being really blissed out and incredibly precise. It doesn't matter. That's more object. But just those moments of simple, whatever you want to call it, being, presence, wakefulness. And as I say, it might be with, with just walking. It might be with seeing or drinking a cup of tea. It can be with feeling pain. It can be with feeling sadness. It can be with feeling fear. It can be with a thought. It can be with nothing special. Because the object doesn't matter, awareness doesn't care. And it cares, you know, about everything and nothing, right? It doesn't care in the sense of some objects make awareness better and some things make it worse, right? That's what the Buddha is saying, awareness the mind is free from the attachments that visit it, or unstained by the attachments that visit it. So you've been sitting all day really lost in wanting, 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 and then suddenly there's a moment of just, oh, wanting is like this. Now, in that moment, it's like a Tai Chi move, right? Wanting, but instead of being so engrossed in it, in our ideas and its me, just, oh, it's like this. That's the awareness. The shift from absorption into the object in our reactions to, oh, wanting's like this. Now, is that awareness somehow impaired because all the so many preceding moments we were lost in wanting? Did that somehow stain or sully or you know take something away from this moment when the awareness? No. How can it? It can't. I mean, you know, ex- explore for yourself. But awareness isn't a thing. It's always accessible, and no experience or object, you know, makes it better or worse. I don't know. It's not so much a thing of thought, but play with it. I've been finding this just so 
freeing. It takes away so much sense of, you know, my practice, my life, my mind, whatever is in the pits. I can't do it. I'm getting nowhere. I've got, I've got so far to go to be able to get anywhere. You know, it's like I need another three weeks just to have a moment of pure awareness instead of, oh, self-judgment's like this. That's it right there. And then we go, oh, now i got, now I got to hold on to it. No, 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 it's gone. Oh, <laughs> wanting's like this. And I can, oh, my God, I just, I get it, and it goes, and then it's so hard, I have to, oh, complaining's like this. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, nothing is a problem. I mean, it's a problem, but being a problem isn't a problem, if you know what I mean. It all has its own, all the experiences, the mind, the reactions, the sensors, they all still have their own flavor. It's nothing really changing, but what this third, for, their, for us there's cultivation of the mind, the cultivation is knowing that there's this other possibility for how we relate to our life, for how we relate to moment to moment experience as it comes and goes and that's what basically life is experience 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 i mean we can't really stop it good bad indifferent me you whatever oh it's like this it's like this sleepiness is like this i really hate sitting here is like this i can't do it right is like this bliss is like this I love myself is like this. That incredibly obnoxious noise is like this. Aversion, desire, self-interest. Once the, the focus, the interest, none of these words exactly capture it. They're all a little too solid, a little too much doing, a little too limited. But once the interest, the love, has really moved from entrancement with objects and experience and me to just recognizing awareness and what's coloring the awareness at this moment, then, I don't know, things just stop being such a problem. And that's our cultivation, knowing that's a possibility, a potential, not 15 years from now, but right now, this moment, this moment, this moment, no matter what's happening. Vastly freeing. And again, when I realize that all of life, all of practice is just moment to moment to moment. It makes everything, for me, so much more workable. Whether I'm talking like now about just recognizing awareness, whether I'm talking about cultivating more purity of mind or some kind of samadhi-focused meditation or building up more energy to walk up hills or whatever it is, when I'm looking with my mind, with thought, into the future and some ideal of how it should be at some point, it's really demoralizing. And it's also not accurate, because who knows? But when we realize it's, there's only this moment, and no matter how completely pathetic our practice or our life or our reaction feels in this moment, the next, in this moment, oh, pathetic, feels like this. It's so accessible, so accessible to anybody. It doesn't take a huge buildup of anything, but it takes, Sajjan Chah said, that willingness to look, to really be here for whatever this moment is. It's like for when I'm in the moment, I can go, oh, self-hatred feels like this. For that to really be true, I mean, I can say it, but for that to really be the experience, it has to be a completeness of presence with self-hatred. It's not an idea, oh, self-hatred is like this. That's back to denial of the first noble truth. Oh, yes, I know, there's just self-hatred and awareness of it, and I'll just be in the awareness. Self-hatred is like this. That doesn't really have that taste of freedom and explore for yourself. It has the taste of delusion, which... (laughs) can, you know, it's hard to recognize, and we can fool ourselves that's freedom for a while. Oh, yes, self-hatred is arising, and I'm aware of it. I'm not really caught in it. Self-hatred and awareness, self-hatred and awareness. And I'll notice over time there's, like, more disconnected, 
more kind of distant, you know, more kind of not touching, less and less fulfilling. Until, you know, you can't pretend anymore. Something always breaks through. And you go, oh, God, I really hate myself. <laughs> you know, oh, I really am useless. Oh, feel the pain of it. Oh, pain is like this. Land in this. As soon as I land in it, without resistance, without aversion, without desire. Oh, it's like this. Upandita Sayadaw said to me once in an interview, I guess something difficult was going on. I don't remember exactly what, but he said, you know, you don't have to be afraid of anything. And that just was so supportive to me, because I know that's what he was saying. You don't have to be afraid of experiencing anything. The beautiful, don't be afraid of opening into it because you'll get attached. Attachment, don't be afraid to notice it. Aversion, difficult. In that moment of really opening into it without the coloring on awareness of wanting, of aversion, of me, in that moment, the, the purity of awareness itself is accessible again. The freedom, the uplift, the, the peace of that. So the purpose of all of our practices, of all the various techniques, the ultimate purpose, it's not to create some lasting state of heart or mind. It's not to create a better or more pleasing object or experience. Short term, it might seem like that. And that's where our old habits come back and we get caught. But it's not like to have deeper breathing, less pain, always equanimous, always blissful, always peaceful, always concentrated. But all of the practice in our tradition is really to help us see through, understand, and abandon our habits, our fascination with experience, with our assessments, with liking and disliking and me, 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 with thinking that we can manipulate and control and get everything the way we want it. To see through and abandon that relentless habits of mind that are in themselves the cause of our confusion or suffering or alienation. And we don't try to create awareness or make it pure. We do less and less. Just simply get more in the habit of, not so much in the turnaround, get notice our habits of getting so entranced by experience and our reactions to it. Just notice that's happening. And turning it around and getting more interested in looking at, is there anything coloring the mind that's paying attention? You get more interested in the awareness itself. And really that gets, in a way, more and more happiness producing, more fulfilling. We get less, really less caring what's happening in some way that's not a kind of disconnect, flat, ah, who cares, it's all the same, I'm just aware of it all, it doesn't matter. That's not it. It's kind of like, oh, it should be like, no, it's just how it is. And there's awareness of it. That purity of awareness, it shines through by itself. When we're not so entranced with our attention in trying to reorganize what's going on, we can just notice the awareness. It's happening. You wouldn't know what was going on if it wasn't happening. Get more interested in it. And any experience can be and is, I think Howie said something like this, it really can be like the doorway that brings us back home to awareness. You know, um, one teacher I had once talked about like a two-year-old and a rattle, the two-year-old like completely distracted over here running around, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, and you, want, you shake the rattle. And, oh, yeah, they come back here. Well, any experience can be like the rattle that keys us back into awareness so that we don't have to hate anything. Anything can wake us up in the moment. Sound, sight, smell, taste, emotion, thought, doesn't matter. Dislike of a thought, oh, it's like this. And then we're with the awareness again. So it's like, really, all experience can become a gift. There's nothing we need to fight away. There's nothing we need to really get in a struggle with. And then if we are in a struggle, the struggle itself can be the rattle that keys us back into awareness. It's really wonderful. And that's really the sense of what our practices are about. 
there's lots of techniques, as I said, you know, without this background understanding that all the techniques are to help us see the, the suffering, the futility, the folly, really, of these ways of relating, of greed, of hatred, of me and mine. Recognize them, see how they work. Not with judging, just really see how they work. And then see if we can get more interested, really start to love awareness itself. And then from that background, that context, any of the methods that we do, whether it's shamatha, really trying to get very finely concentrated on breath, whether it's doing metta, which is a kind of um, one-pointed meditation, but also cultivating that feeling, whether it's feeling your breath as the anchor in the body or here, the nose, whether it's not having any kind of anchor, but just noticing whatever's coming and going. There's many more than that, you know, using the whole body breath. All of those, when coming from a path, they're just to help us steady the attention enough to notice awareness, awareness of this, awareness of this, awareness of this. It's fine. But when we're not aware, when we get, again, so sucked into the object, and we do, because the habits are so strong. So here, when we're doing the meditation, it's back to what I started to in the beginning, we can, all of us, so easily get focused on whatever you're doing. Am I doing it right? How can I get it better? How can I get to, you know, often... We get sucked into trying to have our meditation take us to some particular experience. And usually it's pleasant, right? Let's face it. How many of you are trying to get your practice to take you to an unpleasant experience? (laughs) Probably not too many. Or to repeat one. And then to do that, we put in a lot of effort, trying, 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 in order to get a particular experience forgetting, getting so focused on the object of how it's happening that we forget to turn around and look at what is visiting the mind. The mind is luminous, and it's colored by the attachments that visit it. So you can really work very, very hard and get very focused on the breath right here and push and push and get to some kind of great experience, you know, and everything's breaking apart and everything's buzzing, whatever it is. And that's a true experience. And completely miss the fact that craving was driving us. I mean, craving doesn't have to. One can also be just very present, very present, doing the technique, check back, keep checking back. What's the attitude in the mind? Just being here, simple patience, fine. That's fine. But what's more important? Getting to some great experience driven by craving? What have you practiced? in that time. Basically, what's been being fed? Craving. And when, with the craving and the pushing, you finally get that experience, oh, I feel really so sorry because that extent that we think I'm validated, you know, I got this experience. So that validates that way of doing it, you know, and that's, that's how we all get caught in striving. Everyone, we all do. And we keep on doing it until we strive so hard and the experience doesn't come anymore. And then we're cast into the pit of despair. (laughs) So here, all our practices are useful, but keep turning around and notice the attitude in the mind. That's what we mean. Awareness is always available. Notice when it's colored by wanting, by aversion, by meaning. Notice when it's not. Get really interested in the awareness itself. And then all experience any particular method or technique is valid, is valuable, is supportive to help us, you know, cultivate a deeper and deeper trust in the luminous quality, the luminous aspect of heart and mind, and that it's really true for all of us, yes, even you, and even in your most, you know, pit of worthless, useless, bad practice, it's still available (laughs) because ultimately nothing can stain or damage awareness. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.